But we do want to move on now with the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And we have been going through the book of Ephesians, but it's Easter Sunday, and so we're actually going to take a quick break from that and look at one of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And here in this passage, this begins on Easter evening, that Sunday evening. But actually, as the passage goes on, it kind of summarizes, Luke summarizes Jesus' time with his disciples over the next several weeks. Our culture is somewhat familiar with the resurrected Jesus. So, and we are too. So instead, try to hear this passage from the perspective of his disciples, who were not at all familiar with the resurrected Jesus and not anticipating it in the slightest. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful uh, for this appearance of Jesus. We're grateful for this resurrection. And we ask that this morning you would help us to behold it, uh, help us to witness it in the ways that you work in our lives and our hearts. Apply this word to our lives. Help us to believe it and live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you are sitting at home doing your thing, and you get a call from a number you don't recognize. Well, you know, none of us would answer the phone, but imagine you answer the phone, and on the other end, there's a man, and he says, Hi, I'm Kurt Loftus, the treasurer of the state of California, and we here at the state treasury have $763,000 in cash and stock in your name. This is the total of your father's estate who passed away 15 years ago. Of course, you assume it's a scam and you just hang up. But this guy keeps calling you, leaving you messages, assuring you it's for real. He even offers to meet you at a neutral location, a Starbucks, to ease your discomfort. Turns out, eventually you realize it's all true. 
you have a different last name from your dad. The money had been sitting in an attorney's office for years, and finally it was handed over to the state. They tracked you down using Facebook and tombstones. Well, this really happened last spring. In fact, it happens all the time. But the story comes from South Carolina. Kurt Loftus is the state treasurer of South Carolina. He and other state treasurers have to do this frequently. It's estimated that there is $43 billion in unclaimed money across the country sitting in state treasuries. Think of it, someone calling you out of the blue and saying that you have $763,000, which you had no inkling of, in South Carolina. Right here, that that doesn't pay for an in-law unit, but in South Carolina, (laughs) right? That's two nice homes. State Treasurer Loftus uh, wasn't surprised. It took some time to convince the man he had this money. He says, no one on the planet believes they have money waiting for them. Of course not. That would be too good. And that's the kind of disbelief Jesus' disciples were experiencing on Easter evening and the following days. Easter morning, Sunday morning, their women returned to them from Jesus' tomb saying it was empty. His body was gone. And one of them hysterically recounted that she saw an angel and actually spoke to Jesus. The disciples' response was poppycock, right, or or a more offensive term. But Peter and John did run to the tomb. They found it empty, and they were perplexed. Then in the evening, two other disciples come rushing back to them saying they had had a conversation with Jesus on the road. They even sat down to dinner with him. They saw him. Impossible. It's a hoax. It's a scam. It's too good to be true. No one on the planet believes they have money waiting for them. And no one in the first century believed there was any coming back from crucifixion. Certainly none of Jesus' followers thought so. None of them were hoping for or anticipating anything like this. But sometimes there is money waiting for you. And maybe Jesus did come back from crucifixion. Maybe he was resurrected. What would that mean for you? What would that mean for the world? And I'm not speaking only to non-Christians here. No Christian I know, myself included, has fully integrated the implications of this passage into their lives. We Christians also think this resurrection, in its full meaning, is too good to be true. So this passage is for everyone, whether it's your first time in church or thousandth time. Jesus' resurrection, as described here, means at least three things for us. Matter matters, it's all about grace, and there's good work to do. So first, matter matters. It's a really annoying phrase and term, but it's going to stick in your head. Matter, physical matter matters. Let me explain. The disciples were absolutely not expecting to see Jesus again. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. People in the ancient world believed in ghosts and spirits just like the majority of people in the modern world do. These disciples here responded exactly as anyone would, ancient or modern. They were terrified. The only category they had for what they were experiencing was that Jesus' spirit or ghost was visiting them from the realm of the dead, and that's just spooky. But Jesus was not a spirit or ghost. Something entirely different and unanticipated had happened, and Jesus needed to help them understand what it was. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Right? Jesus saying, I'm physical. Touch me. See my scars. Watch me eat some fish. This is what makes Easter Sunday so different from all other accounts of people seeing dead people. Jesus was dead on Good Friday. His spirit went somewhere upon his death. The Bible says both to paradise and to Hades. Jesus visited the full realm of the dead in his spirit. But on Easter morning, his spirit returned to his body and left his tomb. Same body, also new and different, resurrected, not simply revivified or resuscitated. Resurrection, therefore, is life after life after death. Life after death is spiritual. Your soul goes somewhere when you die. Life after life after death is physical and spiritual, united. That's resurrection. Does that sound odd? Life after life after death? It should. It sounded odd then, and it still does 2,000 years later. There are no stories of resurrection in Greco-Roman mythology or in Jewish belief. What this passage and other gospel passages are doing is introducing something completely new to the world, which suggests its authenticity and reality. I taught uh, AP U.S. history to juniors in high school for five years. And because of our unique schedule, we didn't have enough time in class, so I had to send the students home to take their timed essay tests. And of course, you can imagine that there was a lot of temptation for them to cheat at home. And of course, cheating did occur. And I could usually tell. Because you get to know these kids. You get to know their voices. You get to know their writing voice. And you can tell what isn't theirs. This is not the voice of Jewish fishermen from the first century. This is not the voice uh, of, of Greek philosophers and mystery cult leaders. This is new and unique. And if these disciples were making it up, they would have invented something far more believable for their culture to swallow. Chuck Colson, who was special counsel to the president, the first to go to jail for the Watergate break-in and subsequent cover-up that led to dozens of jail sentences and President Nixon's resignation, he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The point is, resurrection, life after life after death, was not simply an idea in the air that these people appropriated. No one was expecting it. No one would have claimed it unless they had actually seen it. Now, there were some Jews at this time who were hoping in a resurrection, but they expected that to happen at the end of history for all the righteous. But here is one man being resurrected in the middle of history after death and torture on a Roman cross. What Easter Sunday means, what this physical resurrection means is the future is here, the future is now, and the future is material. 
matter matters. Which would have been surprising for people 2,000 years ago and is still surprising for us today. Because we can't help but believe that the truth, the ultimate reality, is invisible. This place is so chaotic, common, corrupt. There must be some place of reality that is pure. Where essential goodness is reduced to an invisible, spiritual reality. Some might call it a force. Which is how Yoda describes it in The Empire Strikes Back to Luke Skywalker. Remember, Luke is in training in the swamp, and he's supposed to use the force to lift his X-Wing fighter out of the swamp, but he can't do it, saying it's too big. And Yoda replies this way, Size matters not. Judge me by my size, do you? And well, you should not. For my ally is the force, and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow, its energy surrounds us and binds us. Here's the point. He says, Luminous beings are we. And he pinches Luke's arm and says, Not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you, here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. This makes a certain amount of sense to us. Spirit is better, more permanent, more powerful, more powerful than matter. The intention is more important than the act, right? You've heard it said, and you've probably said it over and over again. It's the thought that counts. And so if God did come to earth as a human, you'd think he'd do his work, shed this crude matter of a body, and go back to his blissful spiritual state. But that's not the Christian story. Resurrection says that God the Son, after dying, took his body back. His same body, but also made new. So physical matter matters. See, we're all tempted to believe that our real selves are these spiritual beings, their souls that are temporarily using this body, this body that is decaying and can often feel like a prison. But what Jesus' incarnation and resurrection means is that our bodies, this physical stuff, our bodies are unified with spirit. We are material, spiritual unities. It happens here in our bodies. You and I are walking miracles where spirit and matter unite The heavens are spiritual. The universe is physical and material. Only in humans are the spiritual and physical combined. This is why God the Son became a human being and why he remains a resurrected human being. Look at how Jesus says it in verse 39. Touch me and see for a spirit... No, no, that's not what he says. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And really he says, see my hands and my feet. I am myself. Jesus, using the name for God, says, I am this body with scars. This is me. This body is Jesus. You are your body, and your body is you. And you are God's masterpiece. We so easily denigrate the material and physical, but resurrection means matter matters. What we do with our bodies and do to our bodies matters. The hardware you work on matters. The software you write matters. The cleaner floors and the more organized space you create matter. The gardens you weed and the bushes you prune matter. The food you prepare and eat and the animals and fields it comes from and the people who process them all matter. If resurrection is true, then every inch, every second, every atom matters. Physical universe is not a mere quantum blip or a facade that will fade away into a spiritual future. Everything has potential value and meaning. Love is embodied. Hate is embodied. 
generosity and hope are embodied. We are made to have bodies. You don't live forever without a body. The eternal future is matter and spirit united. And we see that begin here in Jesus' resurrection. Why? To what end? For what purpose? For our joy and glory, which leads to God's joy and glory. That's why it's all about grace. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus here is saying that the whole point of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is that it was moving, what it was moving towards all along was his suffering, death, and resurrection. All the stories, all the laws, all the poems, the prophets, they all add up to God coming, suffering, dying, and rising so that now there can be forgiveness of sins for everyone. Some people look at Christianity or the Bible and conclude that what God wants is behavior modification. Just behave well and you'll be good with God. But the point of the Hebrew Bible is to demonstrate in all kinds of ways that even God's people will never behave well enough to dwell with God. Our hearts need to change and we can't change them. Jesus coming, dying, and rising, it's the missing puzzle piece that makes all of it make sense. So the Bible becomes a story of rescue, and Jesus is on a rescue mission. I've told some of you before how I love to read the obituary section. And you might not have heard of Victoria Ruvolo, but she died a few weeks ago. Well, who is she? Well, she's known for an extreme act of forgiveness. One night in New York, in 2004, Miss Rivola was driving home from watching her niece in a recital. And there was a car with three teenagers uh, approaching her from the opposite direction. And a passenger in that car, Ryan Cushing, at that time 18, he threw a frozen turkey out of the open backseat window of the car to try to hit the passing car. The turkey crashed through Victoria Rivola's windshield, crushing the bones in her cheeks and jaw, fracturing the socket of her left eye, causing her esophagus to cave in, and leaving her with brain trauma. She required extensive reconstructive surgery to her face and months of physical and cognitive rehabilitation before she could return to work. Prosecutors, of course, wanted this guy, Ryan Cushing, to serve the maximum 25 years in prison for what he had done. But Victoria Rivolo persuasively argued that a long sentence would only turn him into a hardened criminal. Had he always been a bully, she asked the prosecutors. Was he always hurting other people? What could possibly have built up inside him so bad that he had to throw something so hard? And so she got the sentence dramatically reduced. After his guilty plea in 2005, Ryan Cushing, aware of what Victoria Rivolo had done, stopped to speak to her in the courtroom. And as he did so, he wept profusely. She embraced him, stroked his face, patted his back. I'm so sorry, he said to her as he sobbed. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. How often do we express that sentiment? 
It wasn't my intention to hurt you, to do any harm. Most of our words and actions come from mixed motives. Often the bad we do or hurt we inflict, we do not fully intend. But we do cause damage and pain regardless. What goes on in our hearts and souls, it impacts the material world and the bodies and souls around us. We can't separate the two. All of us here can think of times when we've hurt people while we didn't intend to cause so much pain, but our motives were not entirely pure. Ryan Cushing's intentions to have fun and only thinking about himself caused immense damage and pain, though he didn't actually intend it. So what can bridge that gap between his intentions and the impact of his actions? What bridges the gap between our mixed motives and the damage we can inflict? Forgiveness. It wouldn't make sense for us to forgive Ryan Cushing, to let him off the hook, right? Oh, you say you didn't intend to do any harm, but hey, actions have consequences. But the only one who can treat him according to his intentions and not his actions is the one who has borne the cost of his actions, Victoria Rivolo. Her physical body and life paid the price for his careless actions. Forgiveness is costly. If Ryan Cushing doesn't pay for his actions... His victim must. Who gets to forgive? The victim, the hurt party. Look at verse 46 again. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The point of Jesus' time on earth was to live in such a way that he could perfectly represent every human. He could know their pain, suffering, temptation, and also on the cross bear the cost of their sin. Jesus became our victim so he could be in a place to forgive us. Jesus rising from the dead, resurrected, means everyone he represents is forgiven and will be raised, perfected. That's what it means for repentance and forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed in his name. As you turn to God and repent, recognizing the damage of your mixed motives and intentions, asking for forgiveness and change in Jesus, you have it. This is the point of the whole Bible, this rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about God's grace rescuing us from the guilt of the damage we inflict on others and the damage inflicted upon us. And the world. Resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus has paid the cost in full. And resurrection is the future for all who trust in him. This is good news and it needs to be shared. And that's what Jesus said, that the Bible story includes this good news starting in Jerusalem and then making it to the ends of the earth, to all nations. And if you were a disciple in the upper room that night and you heard Jesus say, this news would make it to all nations, you would probably be glad and smile. That's so nice that this news is for everyone and someone's going to help other people know about it. How special. And then Jesus drops this bomb in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You are going to be the people who take this to the nations. Because matter matters and it's all about grace. There is now good work to do. Starting in verse 48. 
You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Being witnesses uh, might not sound great to these guys. and In fact, almost all of them will be killed for their witness to the resurrection. But here's the thing. Being a witness in this case also means being a participant. They not only observed Jesus alive after his death, they will soon receive his spirit. That's what he means here by the promise of the Father and being clothed with power from on high. Jesus ascends to heaven. From there, he lives and rules, and he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. These disciples will begin to experience Jesus' resurrection because his spirit is in them. And in fact, he tells them, don't even talk about me until you have my spirit. Again, we think of witness as an objective observer to an event, but to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection means to participate in it. That's how future Christians are called to be a witness, by simply testifying to what they've seen, heard, experienced. If you have Jesus' spirit, then the power of his resurrection is already at work in you, reversing sin and decay, reconciling relationships, restoring creation. You are a witness to Jesus' resurrection as you participate in it. The good work Jesus calls us to is simply to testify about our experiences. Showing their kintsugi. Kintsugi, what's that? Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing broken lacquerware pottery. And it literally means golden repair. Legend has it that hundreds of years ago, a Japanese shogun sent his cracked tea bowl back to China to be repaired. And it returned with these ugly metal staples in it, putting it all back together. So he sent it to his craftsmen and had them do a better job. What they did is they took gold dust and mixed it with this epoxy to make this strong adhesive so that the bowl and and other pottery could be pieced back together, piece by piece, and there'd be these golden veins of repair running through it, making it far more beautiful and valuable than its original form. Now Now these are highly prized collectibles. Kintsugi. If you trust Jesus, that's what his spirit is doing in you now. Being a witness to Jesus' resurrection is simply pointing out the golden repair in your life. That's what Jesus did, right? He said, look at my hands and my feet. And then he showed them his scars. His wounds had now become his glory. In Jesus' resurrection, do you know that God takes your scars, your brokenness, your cracks, and turns them into your glory? God's spirit presses resurrection into you. How might he already be at work? How are the cracks and broken pieces being restored in you? As a pastor, I get to see it. I get to see marriages restored. I get to see addictions resisted. I get to see relationships reconciled. I get to see healing where there is trauma, generosity where there is greed, humility where there is arrogance, connection where there is loneliness. This is why it's actually good news that you are your body. That resurrection is bodily, physical, material. Because most of us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we either want to laugh or cry. 
you look at your body and you say, this is me. You see cracks, wrinkles, broken pieces, lots of things that don't seem beautiful. Or you're not tall enough. Right? This is how it is for me, at least. Someone like me should be on Yoda's side, right? Size matters not. But this is me. This is who I am. And whatever seems not right or broken will be repaired or glorified beyond my wildest dreams and expectations. I have resurrection hope for this body and this soul. And you can for yours too. Back to my opening story about the money sitting around waiting for you. You might have been wondering, do I have $700,000 coming to me? Well, there's actually a website that can tell you if there's any unclaimed money in your name out there that's yours. And I I went to it and I found out I do have some money out there waiting around for me. From one of my old checking accounts, I still have a few bucks left in western Massachusetts. Not even worth my time to retrieve. And maybe that's what resurrection, that's what Christianity has always seemed to you. Or maybe that's what it's become for you. It's not really worth your while. It's not a $700,000 payday, it's a $7 payday. But that's completely misunderstanding resurrection. The resurrection means all the sad things are coming untrue. Death is reversed. Evil is undone and the world is restored. All our wrongs being righted. A scene from Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five captures it beautifully. Maybe you read this in high school. The protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, lived through the bombing of Dresden in World War II. And later, after the war, Billy experiences time travel. Here in this passage, he watches a war movie, but in reverse. This is what he writes. Billy went into the living room, turned on the television. He saw the late movie backwards, then forwards again. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. American planes full of holes in wounded men and corpses took off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, sucked bullets and fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked American bombers on the ground. And those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors and exerted a miraculous magnetism, which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The Germans below had miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them to suck more fragments from the crewmen and planes. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was women who mainly did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody ever again. The resurrection is that kind of power and goodness. That's why the disciples were so disoriented, they disbelieved for joy. In Jesus' resurrection, they saw a reversal. Bad things coming undone, death being unwound. And as you turn to God, repenting for forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, then you are clothed with his spirit in resurrection power, 
to begin to experience resurrection now in the cracks and brokenness of your life. God does the work, and you get to testify to those things, not necessarily on street corners or courtrooms or debates, but in everything, in your morning routine, in your work, in your eating and drinking, in who you eat and drink with, in your shopping, in your driving, in your thoughts, in your bed, you can celebrate and anticipate Jesus' resurrection. Because matter matters, resurrection will eventually seep in everywhere. All the cracks and breaks are being mended and restored. All that's sad is coming untrue, and death is being reversed. It's all because of God's grace. It's what this whole story is about, and you can testify about it because you get to participate in it. Let's pray for that now. God, we thank you that this is the story you have for us, a story of rescue, that you would come and and take upon yourself all of the violence, all of the trauma, all of the hate that we have uh, for each other, for this place. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose. You absorbed all of that evil so that now you can reverse the curse and you can make this place new. Not that we'll be zapped away from here, but that our bodies, this place, will be transformed and will be an eternal home for us and for you. Help us to believe that. Help, help that to change our lives this morning. Pour out your spirit on us that we might be able to testify to resurrection now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.